Today on The Black Goat, we're going to be talking about the role of trust in science and a letter about spinning yourself to fit a job description or a graduate program. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. With me, as always, are my co-hosts, Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. And Alexa Tullett, who is, you can't tell from home, but is looking a little bit different today. Hello, Alexa. Hello, Sanjay. That's very mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> should, I, should I just stop I, no, there? Should we tell should people? <laughs> so so <laughs> Alexa is trying out contact lenses this week, and so uh, um, Samin and I are like, we, we do this for, if you're not part of the magical world of podcasting, we do this over a Skype call. So Samin and I can see Alexa, you folks can't. Um, but uh, Alexa's looking very bright-eyed today. Thanks, Sanjay. <laughs> I don't, I, I, it feels very weird to, so in general, I feel like it feels strange to have a conversation when you can see yourself. I don't know if you guys like close the window with yourselves, um, but I can see like the video of myself. So it's already weird to have that. And then now it's like especially weird because I look like a different person. <laughs> like, there, you, do, you, do you find yourself wondering if there's like a fourth person on the call who's like got a very tiny window in the corner? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I'm like, who is that girl? Are they trying to replace me? Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is our better sighted friend, Shmalexa. <laughs> She's going to be joining the podcast soon. Shmalexa uh, is actually uh, one of my most common nicknames. Really? <laughs> it's actually, it's actually Smalexa. Smalexa? Smalexa. Smalexa. Oh, well, mine is different and special then. I'm, yeah, to me, true. you're Schmalexa, just between <laughs> you and me. Um, yeah, the little corner, the little window in the corner is weird. I, can you actually make it go away? I didn't know if you can. It's always there for me. I'm not, I'm not sure. I never tried. Okay. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I always feel a little embarrassed when I'm like checking my hair on a Skype call. <laughs> not that I have a whole lot of it. Uh, but <laughs> what hair I've got hang, clinging on to forever. Um, so, uh, Alexa, what's new in your life? Uh, I'm glad you asked, Sanjay. Actually, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to learn it, learn how to play chess. Was that okay. so much less awkward? Than Actually, you okay. good job. <laughs> that was so, what that that was totally smooth, wasn't it? Yeah. That sounded totally natural. Um, so, okay. So I'm trying to learn actually a couple of things. So I'm trying to learn how to play chess and I've also, um, been playing poker more than usual. Um, I guess like, so it's the summer, you know, I'm like really ambitious in the summer. I'm like, gonna <laughs> try to learn a bunch of new things. Um, which means that I end up spending a lot of my time doing things that I'm really bad at. So like the, in the last couple of weeks, yeah, I've played like a lot of games of chess that I've lost and, um, I've lost, well, a small amount of money in poker, but, like, a significant number of hands. Like, it's just a small amount of money because we, like, play for a very small amount of money. Um, so I've ha- I had this debate with one of my friends who actually has played both with me. So she historically plays more chess, and she's been sort of, like, teaching me how to play chess. Um, but she also sort of, like, played poker for one of the first times. The first time she's ever played poker for money. Um, and so we got into like a debate about whether, um, chess or poker is like a more, I guess a more intellectual game or like Mm. more, 
more academically challenging game. Um, and I think that I fall a little bit on the side of poker, but she was trying to defend chess. Um, so I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, chess doesn't have luck involved, right? Or there's no randomness, right? There's no like... randomness. I mean, I guess there is luck to the degree that, like, if you are playing an opponent, you have to make some educated guesses about the moves that they'll make. And mm-hmm. their moves aren't always determined, right? There's not always, like, a clear best move, I think. Right. I don't know. Um, but it's not probabilistic in the way that poker is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in poker, the the randomness is what makes it decision-making uncertainty, uh, under uncertainty, right? So you... You know, yeah. So I mean, hand to hand, obviously, like you'll do better or worse depending what you get. But kind of, I think the idea is that in the long run, your success or lack of success is sort of indicative of a long run, you know, long run frequencies of your decisions. Um, yeah, uh, I I don't I don't play enough chess to really have a super informed like side by side comparison. My my son, my seven year old son is kind of starting to learn chess. And so I'm, I've sort of been trying to read a little bit about it. Um, and certainly it's got the reputation, right? Like chess is, its reputation is this intellectual game and poker's right. reputation is this thing that degenerates play at casinos. Right. Um, I mean, I find, I, I find poker to be a really intellectual game. I don't know if I could compare it, um, but there just seems like, uh, you know, sort of endless kind of you can be very mathematical about it and i think mm-hmm. sort of modern like highly competitive poker is super mathematical um but you know for a casual player you can be you know there's still room to be more mathematical or more intuitive um and then some people just play for fun and don't really have a strategy and i love playing against those people but <laughs> yeah well so okay i think one reason that people um I've noticed that some people's first instinct is to say, you know, like chess is the more intellectual game. And one of the reasons that I hear people give for why that's the case is that I think if you are better at chess than your opponent, you will win most of the time. Um, And you don't have to be that much different, I think, in skill to, for there to be sort of like a consistent winner. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas in poker, and I think this is one of the reasons why people think like, okay, well, maybe it's not that intellectual because you you can sometimes win like a lot of money in poker or win a lot of hands and not be good at it or yeah not have a very much experience um which i think i understand where that argument is coming from but i think that um i mean if you think about performance over time it doesn't necessarily i mean you will still do better over time in poker um if you're better at it but samin i feel like this is related to the argument that we had about basketball versus baseball. I was baseball. just thinking that. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, it's about how much random error there is, right? And, like, what I right. hate about baseball and also dislike about, like, hockey and soccer, even though I love watching soccer, but um, it's just that, yeah, the better team doesn't always win. There's, like, so few goals, so few times that someone scores that easily that it's easy for the less good team to win, whereas in basketball there's so much more aggregation. So there's, I think, less random mm-hmm. error in the outcome of each game even though there's a lot of random mm-hmm. error and whether a team scores or not on a particular possession. Um, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that is definitely a difference. I don't know if it makes it more or less intellectual, but like in poker, they say that, yeah, to know if you're a, a, like a winning player, 
you need thousands and thousands of hands, right? right? And then and then once you have enough hands, once you have a big enough sample size, then yeah, the the you know sort of reliable trends emerge. But you know, sitting down to a night of poker, it's like I would, you know, I would maybe with some hesitation sit down to like you know, a session of poker with Daniel Negreanu, and I might have a chance of, like, coming out with some more money. But if I had to, like, play yeah. against him consistently, I would just, you know, he'd own my house. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, whereas, yeah, like, if I... Like, I could I could play one session of poker with Daniel Negreanu, and I might win. If I played a one-on-one basketball game with LeBron James, I would definitely lose. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's no no uncertainty there. Yeah, I like how we've just totally crossed the metaphors. Yes, the yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know. I mean, we we talked about poker. I think it was the last time when we were talking about results-free evaluation, right? And I think that is you know it does have some interesting relations to to science. How like you know being you know being good at generating hypotheses is like at best you'll know over the long haul. And yet we, you know, we do things like selecting people over very small sample sizes um, when they, even even if nobody was p-hacking, everyone was doing things sort of textbook perfect. Um, and we were trying to say, we're going to we're going to take this as an indication of how good of a theoretician you are by like, can you pick out good hypotheses, which may or may not be a goal. But like there would be just so much randomness that like somebody who, you know, sort of. And, and to me, I can see Samin gearing up to <laughs> so what you're saying to tell me is, that that's not what science in, is about. Instead of uh, evaluating job candidates based on a single match, like you each give one talk and we pick the best one, we should have like pool play and then playoffs, like a whole tournament, right? <laughs> Where like then we pick the one who's like the best over many studies over, right? Because otherwise, like maybe your job talk is based on your last idea, which didn't pan out, and so it's a null result and it's less exciting, or whatever. But really, we should be evaluating people over the long run because any single shot they could easily have had bad luck. Yeah, because the the job search process isn't exhausting enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, I think we should make it as much like a competitive tournament as we can. We should have the World yeah. Cup of of job search. The World Cup of jobs. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was disappointed that I didn't get a trophy when I got my job. Yeah. You you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> I totally no, um, yeah. So so uh, I, I feel like I missed an opportunity. I'm always jealous when the two of you are in the same place at the same time when we do the podcast. And I was just in the same place at the same time as Samin, uh, but we didn't record an episode of the podcast. But uh, Samin and I were just at uh, ARP, the Association for Research in Personality, in Sacramento, California. And it was a it's that's one of my favorite conferences to go to. I feel like that's my community. That's my people when I go to that. Um, I don't know. Samin, do you feel that sort of sense of like I'm here with my people? Yeah, I think especially this time. I think it felt distinctly more inclusive this time. Like I think in the past, I've sometimes felt like the personality world is a little bit old and stuffy and a little bit white and male. And that's still true, but oh, this time a little it just bit. felt... That's why you don't like baseball, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this time it just felt... There was just a buzz. Like, it just felt more yeah. lively and also a little... It still has a long way to go, but it felt broader and more inclusive than it has in the past. And it was bigger than it's ever been. All of, like, I don't know, 300-something people. Um, yeah. Yeah, I... I 
I agree. I feel like it's every time I go to one of the, you know, one of the personality conferences, they feel just a little bit more diverse. Um, and obviously, personality psychology has a long way to go. But it, it felt more like the younger generation was more and more, like you said, more and more evident. Um, I, I, so, uh, and, and a lot of talk about open science, reproducibility kinds of issues, like lots of talks where people say, like, here's my pre-registration, and, and this was how we did it. You were on, I thought, a really interesting symposium about null results, uh, yeah. which, was, which was really was cool. Awesome. A couple of replications, a couple of original studies. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll speak for the other talks, not mine. I thought the others were were really, really good. Um, it was just, so I would, later on I was on a panel on, on replicability and open science and I ended up not giving the comments I'd planned to give for an interesting reason that maybe we'll talk about. But one of the comments I was gonna, I was gonna talk about misconceptions about replicability and open science. And one of the misconceptions I was gonna say is that null results are boring or not fun. And I was gonna say, well, we just disproved that in that symposium because it was just really lively. Like I felt like I was on the edge of my seat during the talks, even though the, the symposium was called like null results. So you knew what the punchline right. was going to be, but it was still like fascinating and it's still like a really neat puzzle about like how should you interpret these and you still feel like you've learned something. Like that's definitely progress, you know, when you get a really high powered, well designed study that comes out null. Um, and each of the stories behind each of those results was really fascinating. I think all three of the other talks are papers that are either under review or in press. So hopefully we'll, we'll be able to post links to some of them maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was a really good testament to the importance of designing research. You know, we talked about this last time, designing research so that if, if you get a null, it will be informative. And all of the studies in that session were designed so that when they got a null result, the you could, you could believe the null result. And then also the sort of background theory was that it was interesting that you got the null result because you might have expected otherwise and so you know exactly as you said you had to then figure it out so i thought that was really cool and yeah i thought that the the town hall on open science that that uh you were kind of on the panel that sort of kicked that off i thought that was really cool as well the the vibe in the room seemed very much like you know there's there's a very i mean i'm sure there are people that are you know feel differently and and i actually felt a a little bit like i would have liked to hear more from those folks, but the, the vibe in the room was just like, okay, you know, a lot of us are on board and, and how can we make personality psychology stronger and, you know, how can sort of personality psychology play a role in the larger field in terms of sort of, you know, what we do. For me, the highlight of that session was when Felix Chung gave some comments at the beginning and he talked about uh, watching grad students ahead of him go on the job market and he told a couple anecdotes of like a grad student who in his opinion took a lot of shortcuts and was doing things kind of to get publications and to kind of play the the game and that person got a great job and got tenure and then another one of his colleagues in grad school um, did things like the slower harder way and didn't get a job and then the end of his speech was his story of doing you know he did a lot of really rigorous work in grad school he did some replications and then he went on the job market and did not get a job in a psych department. Um, and so it was, it was very much a sobering talk. He didn't let us off the hook. He forced us to confront mm-hmm. this fact about our field. Um, and I, th- I just think it was, it was not only brave of him, but just also so important for that to be on the table. And he, he really didn't let us squirm out of it. Like you had to sit there with that fact and those conclusions and think about what that means and what what our responsibility is. 
So I thought that was that was way more honest and way more I don't know. I just thought I thought that hour could just be a bunch of like frivolous talk about, you know, ideals, but instead it got mm-hmm. real. Yeah. He, thanks to him it got real really fast. Yeah, I agree. I yeah, it 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 made it personal. It's not like these abstractions like, oh, I'm defending these nameless people, or it's not like, oh, ha, sunny, whatever, let's do X, Y, Z. It was like, yeah, it was just a very sort of personal story. It wasn't accusatory in any, you know, it it was, but it was emotional. It was, um, and I thought it really set a good tone. It's like, this is, you know, these issues have stakes for real people and the work that they care about and are passionate about. Um, And yeah, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, I think it also um, it raised a couple of of issues for me. On one hand, like I feel like personality does a good job of trying to reward that kind of behavior. So like I feel like as a subfield, we maybe aren't as blameworthy as the whole field of psychology. So just as an example, both of the best paper awards that were given out at this conference, so for 2015, 2016, in the Journal of Research and Personality, both went to null effects. That was not by design. That was just what what the awards committee, I think, mostly the editors of JRP felt were the best papers of those two years. So I think that reflects our values. But um, but on the other hand, I think maybe because personality as a subfield doesn't have the highest status in psychology, getting an award for best paper in JRP isn't going to land you a job in a psych department that doesn't have a standalone personality area, which is almost every psych department in North America. So there's this like weird tension where like I feel like in our field we're doing a pretty good job, but beyond our field beyond personality psych, we're not doing a great job of providing the right incentives. And part of that is like, how can how can we do more outreach from personality psych to try to kind of spread those values or at least get recognition for the things that we're doing right and help our, our young people or our early career people rather get jobs when it's not enough that we train them well, right? We also need somehow to translate that into getting recognition for that for them. I think that's a yeah. challenge. And the other thing I thought was really useful about Felix's story is that I think it's real, a really, really good response to a, qu- a question that hadn't been posed, but I think is in a lot of people's minds, which is like, why do those people have to be so mean about all this replicability stuff, right? And we've talked about that on this podcast before, but like, why do we have to call out bad research or p-hacking or why can't we just let the past be the past? Mm-hmm. Why can't? And I think Felix's story is one answer to that. We don't have to be mean about it, but we do need to be openly critical of shoddy research because otherwise it harms the people who are doing solid research. And it's part of that whole changing the incentive structure. The carrots help a lot. Recognizing you know, positive mm-hmm. things helps a lot, but it's not enough, I think. And when, young peop- when early career people are seeing people who do take shortcuts, who aren't doing super rigorous work, getting rewards and so on, I think it can be really disheartening. Also, it can have very practical consequences for them. So I think it's important to call that out and to point out why why it's necessary to to be openly critical, of course, in a civil way and in a way that's not personal. But when research has flaws, we should be able to say so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I think the you know people it's this weird defense that people sometimes go to, and certainly not everybody, but people you know. Sometimes people will come out and say, "Look, this research it doesn't really matter that much anyway. It's not affecting people's lives." And I'm like, "Holy shit! You would never <laughs> say that in another context." And I don't think you believe it. And do you feel like a fraud when you like 
collect your paycheck or apply for grants. Like, no, you would totally promote this work in another setting. Um, and I think this, you know, there's a more subtle version of it at play when people say, like, why can't you just leave the past alone? It's like, well, that work is out there and it's it's influencing the results are influencing consumers of the work. And as you said, within the field, you know, people are advancing their own interests based on having produced that work and having it on their vitas. Um, it's it's affecting people. And so, uh, um, you know, we have to be OK sharing our dare I say, organized skepticism, uh, a little foreshadowing for what we might talk about later. Anyway, uh, well, I, I can see that Alexa's uh, uh, eyes are glazing over as the two personality psychologists yak at each other. Um, should we read our letter? Should we, should we like move psych- on? Uh, social psychologists always say personality psychology is just really boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> them's fighting words, Alexa. But you should still <laughs> dance. <laughs> no, or maybe not. <laughs> no, don't. Uh, so let's talk about our letter. Alexa, do you want to read us our letter of the week? Sure, yes. Okay, so, um, dear the black goat, how much of imposter syndrome is a consequence of pressure to pretend to be something that you're not? My particular example, I was recruited to apply for what seemed like a really great job that fit me in my work in a lot of ways, but not on Dimension X. It was suggested to me that with some spin, I could look like X. I debated with myself how much to do that, and in the end I decided they could take me or leave me as I was. Needless to say, they left me. Don't graduate admissions seem to apply the same kind of pressure? Are we setting students up to feel like imposters from the get-go? Best anonymous. Um, I, I mean, I thought this question was, or this letter was really interesting because I think that most of us have been in a position um, at some point where we thought, like, okay, um, even even you know basic advice when you're applying for jobs is to tailor your materials i think to some degree um to fit the different schools that you're applying to or the departments that you're applying to um and there's of course a way to tailor things that's not dishonest but i think you know um in many cases we feel like we're sort of presenting ourselves in a way that you know maybe emphasizes the fit while not sort of like presenting ourselves in completely holistic, honest ways. And I thought that the connection that this person made to imposter syndrome was great. Like, so, um, to me, this, like this resonates with me a lot because when I applied for my job here, it was for a psychophysiology position. Um, and so I very much presented myself, um, and in a way that wasn't, uh, inaccurate at the time, but would be fairly inaccurate now as a psychophysiologist, Um, and I emphasized my EEG research and things like that. And then, you know, when I got here and I was like setting up my lab, I was really like, it gave me a lot of anxiety because, um, yeah, there was just a a big way in which I didn't feel like that was my primary identity. And then I ended up, you know, I ended up moving away from that identity quite a bit. Um, and, but yeah, because that was, you know, the job that I had applied for, I really felt a need to sort of become this person that I said that I was. Um, I think for the worst until I ended up um, like caring less about that, I guess. Yeah, it it feels like there are like a lot of people have the experience when when they have to behave strategically about something of, you know, sort of feeling, you know, yeah, feeling this sense of kind of inauthenticity, you know, so I, I, I did a 
mentor lunch at ARP and I've done them at, at other conferences as well. And it's always, you know, it's interesting, like the students, you know, and we, we, we often end up talking about networking and students feel like when they're just sort of given a, like generically told like, yeah, conferences are for networking and they don't know what to do. And, and, you know, they have these awkward interactions where they like walk up to somebody cold and introduce themselves because they think that's, (laughs) they think that's what they're supposed to do. And, uh, um, you know, then you kind of, if you're lucky, you sort of get a little further along and more comfortable and you're like, oh, networking is just like socially interacting with people. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's hard at first. And I, I think that there are a lot of situations where, we're sort of told to do things strategically and if it feels too strategic, whether it's like how you present yourself in a job, you know, to a job application, how you present yourself on a grad admissions kind of thing, other sorts of things. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Were you told, Alexa, like, were you given any signals about whether it would be okay? Like when, when I showed up at Oregon, I remember like I was explicitly told like, yeah, whatever, like your startup account is now, like it's just a pot of money and you don't have to spend it on what you said you were going to spend it on that if you know obviously like if I was like spending on vacations they wouldn't let me do that but you know like they they said like we understand that you're you know things evolve and and the the point is to give you discretion that gave me a huge sense of relief because I I was sort of like oh if if I like start moving in a different direction I don't feel like I have to be the thing I presented myself as you know, however long ago but were, were you given any explicit signals either that you were supposed to be this psychophys person or that it was okay for you to like grow as a scholar in a different direction? I think I probably haven't gotten signals much in either direction. Um, so, so nobody has communicated to me that it's important for me to continue doing psychophys research. But yeah, Sanjay, I didn't have the same situation as you where my startup was, I was told that I could use it for anything. I had to use it specifically for what I had listed um, when I requested it. So I think, I think that did communicate to, I, I think that ended up feeling, um, like it created a role that I had to fulfill because I also then felt like I'd spent all this money on this equipment and I should probably use it. Yeah. Startups, I think are, I think I, I felt imposter syndrome when I, when I was negotiating just because like, who the fuck am I to ask for all this money? Oh my gosh, I know. It's like, I mean, it is, this is like first world problems. All the grad, all our grad student listeners are like raising their middle fingers at me right mm-hmm. now, like hearing me complain about spending my startup. But um. I think there's there's a flip side to this, which is like I think we often assume that people have their jobs because they were like clearly the best fit for that job, and they were that's what they did, and so that that basically no one else had to like fake it to get their job. And I'm often surprised how how often I'll find out like someone's at a business school, but actually when they were hired, they had never thought about the connection between their work and like the business side of things, or they're yeah in a psychophys position, or they're in a methods position, or they're in a whatever position, and actually they grew into it, or the the position grew to fit them. Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'll see people like not even apply for things because they think that's not them. And I, what I like about this letter is the person still applied for it, it sounds like, and said, you know, you can take me or leave me. Um, and, you know, in this particular case, that didn't work out. But I think that more often than I would have thought, that does work out. So, like, I've seen people apply for things and say, well, it's, I'm definitely not what they're looking for. And then the committee's actually responds like, oh, well, we didn't know it, but this actually is another way to think about the position that we're looking to fill. So I think it's important. Mm-hmm. I like, 
I like the attitude of like being relatively honest about who you are. You can emphasize different things for different jobs, but not pretending to be something you're not and letting people take you or leave you. Of course, it's a luxury you can have if you have a lot of interviews or whatever. But I think the best case scenario is you do that, but you don't decide for them if they want you or not. You let them decide. Um, I thought another um, part of this question that was interesting that I wanted to ask you guys about was this idea of whether we sort of set students up to, to be imposters. Um, and I was wondering, like, what do you guys um, communicate to prospective graduate students? Like, do you, do you think you give the impression that you want them to be interested in, in a certain thing or to be a certain kind of researcher? And is that a good thing? Or do you feel like you suggest that there should be some flexibility? I, as far as interests go, you know, I, I, feel like the psychology norms are way too much in the direction of like having to represent yourself as knowing what you want to work on in graduate school. Right. I think we're, we're we ask too much of it's just unrealistic to be like, you, you know, you have to like tailor your interest to exactly this professor and make it sound like they're the only person in the world you could possibly work with. And, you know, yeah. you're prepared, you know, you're interested in exactly what they do and everything. Um, I, I, you know, imposter syndrome can you know can spring from many sorts of soil and so I'm not sure that if we change that it would make a huge dent in imposter syndrome I think there are other reasons why that's maybe not not optimal um, and it's probably a source of imposter syndrome for people I mean I do I do talk pretty explicitly to students about imposter syndrome as a general phenomenon I mm-hmm. when I hear them comparing themselves to other people I try to confront that pretty directly if, if I, you know, realize that's what's going on and, and sort of, you know, I, I, I think I'm, <laughs> I, I've been uh, teased by my students as not the most expressive person in the world. I do try to remind myself every once in a while to tell them my positive uh, uh, things I think about them, uh, which are genuine and uh, my students can tell you if I do that enough, but uh, they'll probably say mm-hmm. I don't. But you know, I, uh, it's it's not for lack of feeling. It's because I'm a stone cold person. <laughs> you walk like a robot, and you interact with students like a robot. I, <laughs> I mean, but the thing is, like, so I have the same view that you do, Sanjay, about interests. Like, I don't really care too much what my prospective students' interests are, as long as they're broadly, you know, they're interested in questions in the same ballpark as me and even then if they have a new new direction they would take the research and that's exciting but I do think I push very hard or I pull very hard for people who will say what I want to hear in terms of like values or approaches to science and maybe even methods so like if someone wants to do methods that I'm not an expert on I think I might be less likely to take them or if they are their approach to science and their values are really different than mine that definitely affects their chances and I suspect prospective students know that or can tell that and so Am I creating an atmosphere where they're motivated to tell me what I want to hear, and then I might accept them under false pretenses? And if so, what what should we do about that? I don't really know because I don't I don't want to give up that criterion for my evaluation of prospective students. So you really do want some of them to feel like imposters and not come? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally putting words to in your mouth. The real thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, you have to, like, there are some things that are of core importance, right? And and you have to, you know, it's going to be like a five, six-year process of collaboration. And so the things, you know, you have to find good ground. I just, I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think that, like, 
how much work you've done already in the line of what I exactly do is the most important thing. I agree with you about like, you know, values and like scientific values and outlook um, being important and trying to get a sense of that. Um, and that, that feels more critical than like your accomplishments. Yeah. Mm hmm. Well, I think, uh, I hope we've answered at least kind of the letter. I, I often have this feeling when we do the letters, like we go off in 17 different directions, but hopefully our letter writer feels like, uh, we've, we've done them some justice. Um, so let's talk about our main topic today. If you guys are cool with moving on, somebody sure. at ARP, by the way, uh, um, told me they're like, I really enjoy the podcast. And they're like, Sanjay, your thing is awkward transitions, <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to do better at that. I feel like By I don't do want to better. Be... You mean like emphasize it more? Or well, I don't. I don't, I don't want to be like let's move on. If uh, if you guys have more to say, but I'm also like I'm trying to keep an eye on the time and everything, and you know. Anyway, um, yeah. So now there we go. I, I started to make a smooth transition. I just fucking made it awkward again. Oh, anyway, man. all right. That that is my thing. That's that's just my calling card. Is awkward podcast transitions. All right. Next topic, let's talk about uh, the role of trust in science. So this is something that I think has been, uh, I mean, I think it's, it, it's been behind a lot of the replicability discussion for a long time. I think it's, it's been bubbling up in some really interesting ways lately. You know, we're probably going to talk about the pro initiative and some other things like that, open data more generally. Um, but I thought, actually, I learned this from you, Samin, that... Uh, the, um, which is really interesting, I think kind of a, a good way to, to sort of set it up as like this is not a new thing, is that the Royal Society, which is, I believe, the oldest scientific society in the world. Still it in was existence. Founded in, the oldest one still, still in existence. existence. Yeah, so it was founded in, in 1660. Their motto, which has remained the same since their founding, is nullius in verba, I don't know if I'm saying my Latin correctly, uh, which is Latin for take nobody's word for it. Um, and you were the one that first pointed that out to me, Samin. I, I think that's like super interesting that, you know, this, the oldest continuous scientific society we have today is like, don't trust shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that, so to set up the tension. So on one hand we have that, right. And we'll talk more about like the values of science that surround that. But on the other hand, we have people, um, not not just in the replicability debate, I think it goes deeper than that, saying, you know, being offended if you don't trust them and if you ask to verify the basis of their claims or things like that, like people mm -hmm. um, feeling upset and feeling like, what, like, why don't you trust me? And that's a, that's personal, that's not fair. Um, and I, I think that's a very understandable human reaction. And I think that to me, so I hadn't heard of the Royal Society motto until I, I can't remember who I heard, but I heard it in a talk fairly recently um, I also heard um, Art Lupia make the case in a talk, and he has a paper where he argues for the importance of transparency, and he says like that access to the basis of other people's scientific claims is what makes science different from other ways of knowing. That's that's what makes us different, and that hadn't occurred to me before. And then I read more about philosophy of science and what you know the arguments about what makes science different from pseudoscience and things like that and it turns out that actually this concept of verifiability is really really fundamental and i don't think i was ever explicitly taught that or if i was it was like you know a day in undergrad and i've forgotten it and i wonder if the replicability debate would be going differently if we had all kind of absorbed that 
kind of philosophy more as we were becoming scientists that like this is actually something we need to hold on to really really tight because otherwise we aren't that different from pseudoscience or from appeals to other ways of knowing intuition authority etc yeah i you know it's interesting the the philosophy and I, I would i would love to have a philosopher of science on someday to like you know who, who really knows that inside and out i mean i went you know like i've gone looking in different sources for you know, philosophers of science talking about things that would pertain to replicability. And sometimes it's hard to find them because they almost presume that, of course, you're on board with verifiability. So, like, you go to, you know, Popper's big thing or one of his big things was, like, the demarcation problem, what makes science mm -hmm. different from non-science. And for him, he was, like, his whole thing was trying to argue for falsifiability, right? Mm -hmm. But along the way, he has, like, a couple of paragraphs where he's, like, well, of course, everybody knows that that like the you know the things we admit as evidence have to be intersubjectively verifiable, um, and you got to deal. Maybe it's more than a, a paragraph or two, but you know it's it's kind of like a sort of a brief stop along the way to getting to the thing that he actually thinks that he needs to make a case for. Um, uh, and and I you know I realize Popper is like passe in philosophy of science circles, but you know when I've when I've looked you know again i'm not a philosopher but when i've looked in other places it sort of has a similar feel like they're they're not they're not really sort of it's it's just kind of like uncontroversial and, and of course maybe like philosophers love to like find something that's been taken uncontroversially and then pick it apart so maybe there's some like postmodernist. well i think that postmodernists sure. would have a different view but yeah. We don't, we're not going to talk about that. I think it's important to point out here, we're not even talking about replicability yet. We're talking about reproducibility, right? Which is like, can I take your data and reanalyze it? Or I guess we're talking about both. But even just saying like, right, I wait, should Wait, are those able... different? Are those words supposed to refer to different things? Some people use them differently. Some people use reproducibility Sorry, I'm, I'm just, to mean... I'm trolling here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's important because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not I've even seen, sure... I've seen Twitter fights over whether those words are supposed to be different yeah, right, and, and right. you know, so the horses out of the word, barn door. So there should be a word, and I'll use the word reproducibility, but there should be a word for, can I take your data, take your description of what you tested, test it in your data and get the same result. So that would be yeah. one thing, reproducibility, for example. And then can I take your description of what you did and then do it myself and get a similar result? That's replicability. So I think there's resistance to both of those things um, being fundamental to science in the current replicability debate. And yeah, I think it's hard to, to prove definitively that this is a basis, basic like agreed upon characteristic of the scientific method. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't think there is such a thing as a scientific method, but at least of science. Um, but it does seem implicit in a lot of, of writing about what makes science science. And we're going to talk about Merton's norms. That's so something else that, you know, a, a lot of replicability talks kind of allude to Merton's norms of science. So he was a sociologist who described four things that distinguish science from other ways of knowing. And there were there's three of the four really that are directly related to this idea of trust. Should do you guys should I keep talking? I feel like I'm talking a lot. <laughs> actually, I'm going to interrupt you. Okay, go for <laughs> it. So actually, to to play devil's advocate, um, when it comes to like verifiability and trust and stuff like that, I'm I'm not sure if this is exactly what you guys are saying, but I when when people I think. So I hear sometimes people who maybe I don't think of as like the strongest proponents of replicability and stuff like that say that they don't like the idea of working in a field where we don't trust each other or something like that. Um, and, you know, they want other people to trust them and their intentions. 
um, and they want to be able to trust other scientists as well. And I think there's a lot going on there that doesn't have anything to do with an objection to verifiability. Like I think that part of it is um, is that people want other people to not question their motivations. Um, and I think we get into sort of like a gray area there where um, it's not clear whether we're all on the same page about what, you know, what kinds of practices are okay and not okay. And so, um, you know, it's not always like an accusation that, that somebody um, was doing something that they thought was wrong um, when we accuse somebody of doing something that we think makes their science weaker. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think sometimes people, when they, they are arguing for more trust in the field would endorse verifiability, but think that there's something different from that. Like that a suspicion about other researchers that they're trying to like pull one over on you or something that that they don't like yeah yeah I, I, it's it's like a culture of trust is kind of yeah i think it's part of what what people want but i feel like there's actually not much difference between the two i think it feels different right you're saying no no no, i'm fine with verifiability i just care how you feel about me i care that you think i'm a trustworthy person that you think i'm honest etc but then how does that manifest itself it usually mm -hmm. manifests itself in saying, well, take my word for it. If I say that I predicted something, even if I didn't pre-register, I want you to believe me that I predicted it. Or if I say that this was the only flexibility in my data analysis, even if I can't prove it, I can't have a pre-registration again or share my data and code mm -hmm. or something like that, um, I want you to believe it. So again, I, like, in terms of what does that trust translate into, the trust you're asking for, I'm happy to give it, but I still want to see your pre-registration or your data or your materials or mm -hmm. to be allowed to be skeptical if you won't show me those things. So right. that will reduce my certainty in your effect. So if you're okay with that, then I'm okay giving you my trust. But then that's what it means yeah. to me is like, I'm sure I'll trust you. Can I also have all those things? And if we agree on that, then yeah, I'm happy to say, I don't, I totally believe you're trying to be honest. That's just not enough for me. Yeah. Right. I think the, I mean, the human side of it though, is like, you know, like if, like if I told my partner, yeah, I trust that you're not cheating on me, but you need to let me have the password to your email account anyway, just yeah. to be sure. I would not, as a human being, expect, I wouldn't, yes, I would not, as a human being, expect my partner to like do that and think that I still trust right. her, right? Right. So the truth and, is, I don't so, trust researchers. That's why I want to see this stuff. It just doesn't mean what they think it means. Maybe it does, but I don't, I don't think they're bad people or anything like that. Yeah. And I also think that like, I mean, so I agree with what you're saying, Samin, and I think that what you're saying raises like a broader question about not necessarily specifically trust, but also like good faith. Right. So, um, so researchers could be asking you like, yeah, well, why don't you just trust me? And I think one response is like, well, why can't we sort of like both enter into this into in good faith? Right. So, you know, I'm not going to expect that you trust everything that I say because, you know, I know that there are things like motivating reasoning and biases that could influence, you know, my interpretation of my own findings or like the way that I would report something afterwards. Um, so in a sense, like you're not, you know, if we distrust another researcher, we're not, you know, having like good faith in them. But I think also like asking people to trust you, after the fact, when you're, you know, telling people what your intentions were at the beginning is 
is also not in good faith, right? Like, it's not a fair thing to ask people. I mean, I think the the interpersonal feeling, a lot of it is evaluated relative to norms. And what what I mean by that is, like, if you wrote a right. paper True. and and you said in a scientific paper, my treatment had an effect on the outcome, take my word for it. And you didn't mm-hmm. report the, the, the sample means and you didn't report the test statistics. Um, and you just said, look, this works. And people would go, no, 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 you got to, like... You got to report like what were the the test statistics, right? So we, the norm is a certain amount of reporting information. We you know and and we say report the effect size and don't just say it's a big effect, right? So so there's like a there's a norm for how much is and and nobody nobody says like you people mistrust me. APA mistrusts me by requiring that I report t tests in my mm-hmm. results. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what it, what's happening right now is that the change. norm is shifting where yeah. people are saying what what's what we want to consider normal now is providing access to the raw data and relative to the existing norm that feels like only a thing you do if you don't trust somebody to a degree greater than the sort of normal scientific skepticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I think people on the other side of that are going, no, look, like, the, well, I don't know what they're saying, all of them. They're probably saying lots of things. But, I, you know, my take on it is, like, look, the technology has changed. Like, the reason we didn't used to, to give the raw data was because we couldn't, and now we can. And if you just start from first principles, you say, like, we should be reporting the information you need to verify the analysis. And in the old days, you could, like, you couldn't report the raw, raw data, but you could, like, summarize it down to like cell means and standard deviations that kind of thing and and that was the level at which you provided like verifiable support for your conclusions that you put in the discussion section so i think a, a lot of it is it's just like we we like people aren't thinking of those norms in terms of like how do they derive from our basic values but that's kind of where the, where they come from and so anything out of the ordinary feels accusatory yeah and let's be honest like the reason we're changing the norms is not just because the technology yeah, right. has changed. It's, I mean, I think part of the reason why we don't agree on whether the norms should shift and whether it's now reasonable to ask for the data or pre-registration or things like that is because, for me, part of the motivation for going back to that fundamental value of transparency is the view I have that we really fucked up. Like, if you look at the amount of false positives in our literature, if you look at the number of just basic statistical errors in our papers, if you look at, you know, the Grimm test or stat check or things like that, this whole idea that we're going to trust people and trust that they're going to double and triple check everything and be really careful, or the amount of like conflicts of interest that go undisclosed, this is a bigger problem in other fields, like in medical research, but all of that stuff that we thought we could just do implicitly, we tried that and it failed. We, we are not Mm -hmm. superhuman enough to be that trustworthy. And so part of my motivation for being for shifting these norms is not just that now we can and we should have been doing this all along and now we can do it, which I think that's a very valid argument. But for me personally, it's also like, we did the trust thing, it didn't work. So so if, if well, someone else doesn't yeah, agree that what, it didn't work, they're not gonna be, they're not gonna agree to shift the norms. So, so I, I don't disagree. I guess what I'm saying is that if, if we lived in a world where people were just saying, I did an experiment and I reached this conclusion, and someone said, show me your T-test, we'd be having the yeah, same yeah. conversation. Yeah, I agree. Um, right, so I'm just, that, I'm just that, reflecting on why some people agree that we should shift the norms and why and other people don't. Yeah. And it's not just a matter of, like, yeah. well, now we can. It's also a matter of, like, right. and we need to because the status quo was not working, and not everybody agrees on that, and that's where I think 
the disagreement. Yeah. I think we all agree I mean, that the, these aren't haven't been the norms up until now, and so it is it is a brutal thing to try to shift those norms. Right. The the norm evolved. So so the sort of the valuing of verifiability exists in the norm, even if it doesn't exist in people's heads. Right. The norm evolved to do as much verifiability as we could in a sort of practical everyday sense, um, given the technology at the time. And so, so, you know, so people don't, people don't think of like, why do results sections have t-tests as like a verifiability thing? They, they, I don't think they, I mean, maybe some do, but they, you know, it's just like, oh, that's just what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, we put all the information in there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, so did did we want to talk about the Mertonian norms? You started to yeah. go down that road. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so so I'll just mention real quick. So the three that I think are relevant to this are um, universalism, which is the norm that um, it doesn't matter who said something. The How we evaluate that claim is independent of who said it, and it should be evaluated in an impersonal way. Um, another one is communalism, which is the idea that knowledge should be shared and should be accessible to everybody, including the basis for the knowledge, the claims. And then the third is, this is actually the fourth norm, but organized skepticism, which is that we should be very skeptical until something has been scrutinized a lot from a lot of different angles. It's, it's reasonable and, in fact, important to be skeptical. Um, and then the fourth norm is disinterestedness, which is that researchers should not be attached to their results. That they should be, their, their self-interest should not trump the um, motive to get things right. Um, so those first three that I mentioned, I think, are directly related to the idea that we should have we should build in some checks and balances, some verifiability, and, and not rely on trust the trustworthiness of of each other. And there was a, a survey a few years ago that asked scientists, "How much do you personally endorse these norms?" And it was overwhelming that that you know scientists say when you present these in their abstract form. Scientists say, yes, this is, you know, I believe this is how I want to do science. And then uh, when you ask them, do you actually do it? And they, they come pretty close to, to saying how much they endorse it. And then when you ask them, are other people in your field doing this? And they're like, no, those fuckers are cheating all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that that, you know, for people that say they want to live in a trusting community of scientists, like that's that's kind of a... You know, I think that's kind of an indication that maybe things aren't as awesome as as you would want them to be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that brings to like another. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alexa. Well, yeah. So I think one of the things we've been talking about is you know how norms and expectations and things are changing, and I think that's one reason for. Um, so I think there are other domains where you know somebody. Um, wanting you to give more information or report more, like report more than just saying, you know, my like my effect exists or whatever. Like, um, one of the reasons why people want that is because the norms are changing and the norms may continue to change in terms of what information we need and, um, yeah, what are all of the things that we need to know in order to really evaluate a claim. Um, and so I think that that's one reason why just telling somebody that you want more information doesn't amount to telling somebody that you don't think that they have good intentions, which I think is important, right? Um, Because I think that one of the things that people are concerned about when we talk about, um, yeah, a lack of trust or something like that is this idea that it's an, an attack on people's intentions. And yeah, one reason that it's not is because you can think that people have really good intentions and believe that they're giving you all of the important information, but disagree as to like what information is relevant. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, you know, maybe this is kind of along the lines of what you were saying. Like one of the complicated things about trust, I think, is that we, despite all saying that verifiability is important and all that, is that we need to have trust because, you know, so, mm -hmm. so you sort of say like, I want to do my work and I want to be able to read stuff. And, uh, you know, at some point I have to reach some level of trust that what I'm reading is what it says is, or it's what right. I interpret it to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I can't go and prove every theorem from its axioms and I can't go and replicate every experiment in my own lab, um, in order to like read the scientific literature and then like plan my own experiments or draw my own conclusions. I have to have some level of trust, right? And and you know, and there's a difference between verifiable and verified, and or yeah. you know, and this comes up a lot in the replication discussion, right? There's a difference between saying a finding is replicable and saying it has been replicated, and I, I think that when you start to get into that version of why trust matters, that actually becomes a stronger argument for verifiable because, you know, if if I look at something and I'm like, okay, I can't go out and replicate this experiment myself, but I need to like take it to build on it, take it as an assumption. You know, if I look at it and I say, well, I don't have the time or, or resources to replicate it myself, but I could if I wanted to. The people that did this work, they, you know, they put the data out there or they posted their materials or, you know, they're they're making it easy for other people to do it or they, they you know, they transparently reported everything. Then, then that give, that actually gives me more trust, right? And that helps me do my job um, because I can say, like, yeah, I can I can believe that you know this person did things this way, um, and so so I think in some ways, like we you know the the argument is that like asking for these details erodes trust, but in, in a lot of ways, it you know if you believe in verifiability, then it actually increases trust. I guess it's it's. A different version. It's not that sort of human emotion version of trust. It's kind of a, a rational trust, if if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to go back a to rational, your, not irrational. <laughs> and to go back to your relationship analogy, it's like if you know you don't need the password to your partner's email, hopefully, but if your partner is like willing to leave their email open in the same room as you and like do, you take that sign like okay cool that's a good sign whereas if they like shut their laptop every time you walk in the room then you might be like oh <laughs> and so like in research like if, if i had a collaborator who if i floated the idea of like hey for that study that you ran and you analyzed and i haven't seen why don't we put that online put those data online and the materials online and if the collaborator was like no 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 no, no we're not doing that then i would be like oh I don't, you know, I was okay with not seeing the data before, but now I'm not less okay with it, right? So right. I agree. Like, I think I'm just repeating what you're saying, that, like, the willingness yeah. to put yourself, make yourself open to verifiability um, is a sign that, that yeah, then we, we can have a little bit more trust in each other if we all are willing to do, to, in principle, let others verify our work. Yeah, it's just very practical, right? Like, we wouldn't be able to get stuff done, and collaborations are another... You know, and I, we don't. We've gone down this road a little bit before, but like, you know, you have to trust a that a collaborator did what they said and did it competently. And there's no point in collaborating if you're going to redo everything yourself, because mm -hmm. the you know the reason well, there are a lot of reasons to collaborate, but one is division of labor. 
And it's like, if I'm just going to do everything myself anyway, then like, I might as well just do it myself the first time. It's like, I, I, you know, we work in teams so that like, you can take this piece, I can take that piece and we can, we can work better that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but yeah, it's like if, if my collaborators, yeah, anyway, yeah. That's a lot easier to do now with open data and everything. Like, I think I used to, I used to like, not very consciously, but in the back of my mind, be a little nervous if there was like a whole study in a two or three study paper that I had nothing to do with and it just appeared. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm taking your word for it. But now if I know that it's on OSF and other people can check it and so on, mm -hmm. it's a little easier for me to, to trust my collaborators. Yeah. So I, I think it would be interesting. I mean, part of the reason this has been on my mind lately, and I think you know maybe you guys too, is there's been a lot of discussion about the Pro Initiative recently, and we we talked about it I think a number of episodes back. Um, but it, it might be uh, um, I think just briefly that so the what the Pro Initiative is it's this group of researchers who've who've signed this statement saying that as reviewers, so when they review for for journals. Um, they're going to, you know, they get the article and they're going to look at it and there's kind of a list of sort of transparent reporting practices that they're going to check for. Um, and one of them among a number of them, uh, but one of them is open data. So does the manuscript either say, say where the data is available in some kind of a repository or does it state a reason why? Um, and this is, gets overlooked a lot in the discussion about Pro, but, but stating a reason why is considered compliant with Pro regardless of what the reason is. Why it's not available, yeah. Um, but so the reviewer will look at this, and if it's not in there, then they won't go ahead and do a full review. So they'll, they'll, they'll you know, hopefully very promptly, I think that's, that's the way people are doing it, they'll get in touch with the editor and say, basically, hey, look, um, I don't consider this sort of fully reported unless it's, it addresses sort of the availability of the data. Um, so, uh, would you be willing to contact the authors and ask them to sort of, uh, respond to this? And if, if the manuscript is changed to have, you know, either open data or, or a statement about it, um, then I'll complete a review and otherwise I can't review it. Um, so it's a little bit, uh, um, in some cases, you know, and, and this applies also to like open, open materials and some other things. Um, so there's a little bit of just like sometimes you really can't review stuff with this. And, and, you know, certainly I'd say that's often the case with materials, right? That like it's hard to evaluate something if you can't see the questionnaire items or the stimuli. Um, but there's also definitely like a component of, of sort of collective action to it that people are saying, okay, we're, you know, we're not go going to uh, provide reviews to journals unless things meet a certain standard. Um, and a number of editors, my understanding is, so I haven't signed the pro initiative, I'm not part of this. My understanding is a number of editors have engaged very constructively in this process and it's led to good things. Um, but there's been also some backlash, people going, how dare you tell me what my journal process should be, or authors going, and this is where it's relevant to our discussion today, like how dare you not trust me? Um, what kind of like suspicious destructo critic are you that you won't, you know, you won't just like provide a review based on what I told you? Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting too is that um, many journals are signatories of the COPE guidelines, which is a committee on publication ethics. And the COPE guidelines are pretty short and they address like what a reviewer's responsibilities are and so on. 
and editors and authors. And I, I, I can't find the exact wording, but one of the items in the COPE guidelines is that reviewers should be allowed to have access to any information they need in order to evaluate the claims made in the paper. And I think it explicitly mm -hmm. mentions data and maybe materials, I can't remember, as part of things that a reviewers could ask for, which is slightly different. So the PRO initiative asks the authors to make their data publicly available or state why the data aren't publicly available, whereas this is more about making the data mm -hmm. available privately during the review process. But I suspect, I don't know, it's an empirical question, that many authors would be, that they wouldn't necessarily make the distinction that they're, they might, if they feel like there's a lack of trust, they might react that way even if the reviewers are asking for the data privately rather than publicly, even though it's actually been something we've implicitly agreed to by being publishing in journals that are members of COPE. Um, there's a lot of stuff we've implicitly agreed to by being scientists that we don't even realize. Um, it's kind of funny to think about that. Actually, we, we probably already committed to these principles, <laughs> and now we're realizing what we've committed to. Um, what you were just talking about, Simeon, um, reminds me of the, what you were talking about earlier when you were talking about the, uh, what Felix said at ARP. Um, so I think that, you know, we might have like an initial reaction to somebody, you know, if we submitted a paper to a journal and, you know, we were sort of like, told that somebody's not going to review the paper because we didn't, you know, put our data online. Like, there's, you could have a knee-jerk reaction to that, that that feels like we're not being trusted or something like that. But um, in order to sort of, like, change the incentives to give, you know, give at least not a disadvantage to people who are doing that kind of stuff all the time, um, I think that there need to be changes that sort of look like penalties to people who are not doing those things. So, you know, there's one way to even the playing field is to give out carrots, as you say. But I think that, um, yeah, there's no way where we, there's no way that we can change incentive structures without making people feel sometimes like they're, um, I don't know, yeah, that they're, they're not being trusted or that they're being held to a higher bar for transparency or... yeah. Yeah. I think the reaction to the pro initiative makes me a little worried that people are okay with all these reproducibility open science changes as long as they don't have any teeth because I feel like the pro initiative yeah. just has baby teeth like all you have to do is add a sentence about why yeah, you're right. not sharing your data there it doesn't require you to share your yeah. data it requires you to take a position and, and defend it and um, and if people are resistant to that then my extrapolation from that is that they only like the ideals of replicability and open science in a very, very abstract way, but as soon as it has any concrete implications, that there's a lot of resistance to it. Maybe that's not fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, from, from the editor's side of things too, like all you, you know, the editor can participate and and sort of in, in the sense of like forwarding the request to the authors. But the editor can also just say, look, we that's not our expectation for this journal and, and not send it to that person to review anymore. And yeah, that's a cost to the editor. They've lost a reviewer, but the reviewer, like the reviewer has a right to, you know, I mean, just like I would, if I got a manuscript to review, I would say, and it didn't have effect sizes, and I would say, like, this, I, I don't consider this a complete report without the effect sizes. The reviewer has a right to say, I don't consider this a complete report without addressing the availability of the data. Now, I guess it's a step further to, like, withhold the review, but, there, you know, there have been times when I've gotten stuff to review where there's something not in there, 
and where I just say, look, I can, you know, I can only review it up through the introduction because I, I can't tell what they actually did because they didn't, you know, give this crucial detail or whatever. Um, and, and it's, it's the, I think it's a reviewer's prerogative. Um, and the idea that this is like, yeah, the idea that this is communicating mistrust. I mean, I think one of the things that a lot of the pro reviewers try to do is, is to, to go, you know, to say like, this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a pro initiative signer and this is how I respond to all manuscripts. This is not like, you know, this one, uh, I'm not picking on you. This is just like my blanket approach to how I review things. Um, yeah. Which I think is, I mean, what you were saying earlier, Sanjay, about like the norms, you know, having a big impact on like the feeling of being distrusted. I mean, that's, I think the direction that things need to go and for people to not feel that way. Right. Like if you have a blanket way that you respond to reviews or you have a blanket policy at your journal for what is an acceptable amount of information to disclose or not disclose or whatever, then it becomes less personal. Right. And more just about like principles that we're willing to endorse um, rather than like a reaction to an individual person. Like, Hey, I want to see more information from you specifically. Yeah. yeah, and I think there are other issues like this that are outside of the replicability debate. So I've had reviewers who remind us as authors that we should address the fact that our samples are drawn from college students, and that's a huge limitation, that we didn't make enough of that in the limitation section. And I suspect yeah. those reviewers do that consistently with every paper that uses college students, and good for yeah. them, they should. Um, yeah. So this is... Just Another, not with my page. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. um, Actually, we don't have a lot of college student samples, but yeah. yeah. Humble brag. Anyway, yeah. darn. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, you know, we wouldn't think that was crazy if a reviewer had a systematic approach to those kinds of papers. And I think this is as legitimate of a scientific concern as that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 It's just reviewers have axes to grind since time yeah, immemorial. and that's why we and want this them, is a right? pretty good I mean, one but that's what we're asking yeah, yeah. them to do we're asking them to grind their axes like so yeah right, i mean right. there's one one reaction to the partnership is the good that ones the, reviewers, the ones that have good axes yeah right right that reviewers <laughs> are trying to change journal policy from the bottom up and I'm like yeah in some ways that's kind of what reviewers are for not to change policy but to like express what they think the norms should be like yeah change standards yeah yeah or like tell us their yeah standards. i mean the the, there's, you know, it's now pretty much a, a norm in personality psychology journals that, like, if you have a college student sample, single time point, all self-report, um, that it's really hard to get published at, at, you know, even the sort of kind of better specialty journals um, and definitely at the sort of flagship journals. Like, you know, it's and everybody kind of knows that. And, and that actually has a really good effect. Like when we go into doing a study, we, you know, we look at it and we say, like, you know, I, 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 when I'm planning a study, I look at it and I say, like, is there some way that this departs from that, mm-hmm. that, you know, down the road, because uh, we're going to get a hard time from the reviewers. There's no journal policy. Uh, maybe there is some, but there's rarely, like, a written policy. It's just like, no, that's what the people in my field expect, and I know I'm going to get dinged for it by the reviewers, and like you said, that's how the norm is expressed. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, I, I I feel like uh, I feel like we've 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 really banged this one out. And and is it time for me to awkwardly transition to the end of the show? Uh, yes, I was gonna. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> cool. Well, this is this has been fun, you guys. Um, so uh, thanks to everyone who's listening. Um, this has been the Black Goat episode number ten. 
Uh, you can subscribe to us at iTunes if you want to hear us regularly on your device. We are on the web at www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can email us, send us letters. We love to respond to letters or just get in touch with us any other way. Letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook too. And thank you all for listening and goodbye until next time. <laughs>